to hear well-qualified people address key societal issues, and that from an ethical perspective, is why we gather at Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis of a Thursday noon seven or eight times a year. And that's what we, some eight or nine hundred people, are about today in assembling here at the south end of the Nicollet Mall to hear the man whose name is synonymous with the term the Golden Fleece Award. I, Donald Meisel, refer, of course, to former Senator William Proxmire of Wisconsin. His name is synonymous with much more. Synonymous with the earning of a degree from Yale University in 1938 and from the Harvard Graduate School of Business in 1940. Synonymous with the writing of five books, including The Fleecing of America on the subject of government waste. Synonymous with 32 years in the U.S. Senate, beginning in 1957 with the filling of the seat left vacant by the death of Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy, and ending with his retirement earlier this very year. Senator Proxmire is here today to talk with us about ethics in government. Let us give the senator from neighboring Wisconsin a warm Minnesota welcome. Dr. Meisel, thank you so much for that most uh, gracious introduction. I deeply appreciate it. You're a remarkable man, and this is a beautiful church, and the only thing wrong with it is it's not located in Wisconsin. <laughs> I'm going to talk uh, today about, uh, uh, about our economy, the economic outlook, and the, the ethical, moral implications of uh, our position as a great power, economic power. We are on top of the world, and I want to talk about the momentum that we have, not only the United States, but the free world in general. We are the world's first $5 trillion economy. There's never been anything like a, a situation in our country today. We turn out twice as much in products and services as any other country on the face of the earth. The Soviet Union is second, and of course, we know the Soviet Union economy is in very deep trouble, it's stagnant, not moving ahead. They're less than half as productive as we are. The Japanese are coming on, they're coming on uh, strong. They have a fine work ethic, education ethic. They have a constitution that is modeled after ours now. Uh, and uh, they will make progress, but they can only make progress as we do. They depend heavily on uh, export, on foreign markets. We have a recession, they have a recession. If we prosper, they prosper. But there are very serious ethical implications in our great wealth. And I want to discuss that. But first, I want to get into the, the assertion that I made that we have this great momentum going for us. Most economists, when they speak about uh, our economy, talk about what's happened this year compared to last year, maybe the one quarter compared to another quarter or they talk about how we are faring compared to how we did 10 years ago. But when we compare what we're doing with a whole sweep of mankind on this earth, we can see uh, what privileged people we are. 
What a marvelous time in which we live. Agriculture, for instance. Minnesota, like Wisconsin, great agricultural state. Throughout most of the history of mankind on Earth, the overwhelming majority of people had to spend their lives scratching a bare living from the soil. Now less than 2% of our people produce all the food and fiber and produce so much we don't know what to do with it. We have a real moral problem, ethical problem, and uh, how to get rid of it. We have hunger in this country. We haven't overcome that as we should. We haven't shared with the rest of the world as we should, although we're making some progress in that, in that area. And we have a so-called Food for Peace program that is, uh, that is generous. But we live in a world which is advanced because of uh, mechanization on the farms, tractors and so forth, electrification, computerization now, so that I say a tiny, tiny fraction of our people can produce all the food we need. Food has never been so inexpensive in relationship to earnings as it is in America today. And then we have uh, housing on this uh, bright, cheery, warm winter day here in Minnesota, we can appreciate the importance of having central heating. But uh, when I was a child, there wasn't uh, central heating available. When I was a child, there was no air conditioning. You know, the overwhelming majority of Americans live better than royalty lived in the past. And we have something else that has uh, great ethical implications as well as great joy for us, and that is we live in the healthiest period in human history. Just in the last uh, 15 years, life expectancy at birth has advanced by four years. I'm convinced that, that in the lifetime of my grandchildren, we'll have cancer under control. Heart disease, we're making great progress in that respect. And one of the wonderful things about health today is that we've, lived, we've learned that so much of it is, depends on our own living, the way we live, the discipline that we exert ourselves, not eating too much, not smoking, not drinking exercising vigorously every day. We may be miserable, but we'll live longer. And if we don't live longer, it'll seem longer. But like agriculture, like housing, like health, we should share it, share the understanding of it, the importance of self-discipline and so forth, uh, more than we do. Education. Education has come on, not only in this country, but throughout the world. We're very proud, of course, of our great universities. Minnesota, Wisconsin, we have two of the great state universities in the, in the country. And people come from all over the world to attend our universities because they are the best. But there's a problem there because are the people coming on who will be students in our universities are not doing very well compared to people elsewhere in the world. Our grade school and high school students, according to all the tests, are not uh, scoring as well as they should. I want to speak about that a little later. We have a real ethical responsibility there. Transportation. I flew out from Washington today in less than two hours. I get less than three hours. Change of time there was a little confusing. But we can fly anywhere in the, in the country in a matter of uh, hours, anywhere in the world in a day or two. And of course, now people can travel by car. It was just a relatively few years ago, the great majority of people never traveled more than 20 miles from where they were born throughout their lifetime. But the most amazing change 
technological change has been in communication. We have a situation now where people can, uh, can sit here in Minneapolis and they can buy and sell stocks and bonds uh, in Tokyo, Rome, Berlin, uh, anywhere in the world in milliseconds, just instantaneously. And of course, uh, people can, foreigners can buy and sell our stocks and bonds. We have a mobility of capital that has come on like gangbusters in recent years. Just in the last 10 years, there's been a 12-fold increase in American investment abroad, Americans buying and selling of stocks abroad. And there's been a 20-fold increase, 20-fold, in foreigners buying and selling our stocks and bonds and other, other property in this country. So that whether we like it or not, we are in a highly competitive, very mobile era in which capital can just move like that across continents. And that's one of the reasons why we have to be more competitive educationally, more competitive in many other ways, why we uh, really live in a world in which we are our brother's keeper throughout the world. We used to just think in terms of our states. But now we have to think in terms of the world, and we ought to think in a constructive way, it seems to me. A lot of people are very worried about the Japanese and their competition. I think it's good news that they're making advances. This is good news when Minnesota advances or Wisconsin advances. It's good for the people who live in neighboring states. They make scientific breakthroughs. We'll learn about them and learn about them right away because uh, communication is so, today so magical. We are far more vulnerable. If there are recessions, depressions in other countries, they're communicated very quickly because of the mobility of capital and because we can move across uh, lines. Just as it's communicated rapidly in our country, if there's problems in one part of the country, uh, the whole country tends to suffer. But inflation, recession, depression, interest rate changes, all will, uh, will affect our country and are beyond our control to a considerable extent now. Let me just say a word about, uh, quickly, about the, uh, the uh, fast-changing world we live in and our adaptability to it. It's like the story of a football, a high school football coach. And he was trying to get across to his high school players that they had to follow his game plan. The important thing is to be able to follow leadership and have a real team and work as a team. He gave them that kind of story. And uh, he said, now, you fellas haven't been doing that. And if you don't do it, you're off the team. He said, I'm going to get people who will follow the game plan. So here's the game plan. He said, we get the ball. On the first play, we go up the middle. Won't gain much. It's a good defensive team. Second play, we go around in. That'll spread them out, shake them up a little bit. Won't gain much on that one either. Third play, we throw a pass. That'll be incomplete probably. Fourth play, we kick. Got it? That's the game plan. <laughs> well, the team goes on the field. They get the ball, 20-yard line. First play up the middle. 15 yards, they go to the 35-yard line. Second play, round end, 20 yards, go down to the opponent's 45-yard line. Third play, the quarterback fades back, throws a pass right on the hook, the wide receiver gets it on his fingertips, goes down to his, the opponent's five-yard line. There they are. <laughs> they go back in the huddle, and the quarterback shakes his head, and they come out, and they punt. <laughs> they kick the ball right out of the stadium. They come off the field, the coach goes up to the quarterback, he says, what were you thinking of? You had first down five yards to go in their five-yard line and you kick. Quarterback didn't say anything. Coach repeated himself. Quarterback finally looked up at him and 
The coach said, what were you thinking of? Now you tell me. And the quarterback says, well, I was just thinking this is the dumbest coach I ever played for. <laughs> well, the point of that story is that we do live in a changing world, and believe me, it is changing. And we're changing it. In the last, think of this, in the last uh, 10 years, 60% of all the Nobel Prizes awarded in the hard sciences, that is in physics and chemistry, medicine, mathematics, were awarded to American scientists. So we are changing the world. That technology is doing it. And our technology has given us a very powerful defense. I sat on the, on the uh, Defense Appropriation Subcommittee of the Appropriations Committee. And every year, we'd have the Under Secretary of Defense for Research and Development testify to us on where we stood compared with the Soviet Union in the 20 most important military technology areas. And every year, it was the same thing. We'd lead in 14 or 15. We'd be tied in five or six. The Soviet Union would lead in none, zero. We were ahead of them right across the board. Now, this is critical because the outstanding experts, well, Robert Solow, for instance, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist from Columbia University, agree, the experts agree, that technological advance accounts for 90% of our economic progress. We live, live, live better because of electricity and mechanization and all the marvelous things that the scientists have been able to make a breakthrough on. But we have a problem. That's what I want to really hit. We have two problems. One problem is the debt problem. That's a bad four-letter word the way we're doing it. Shouldn't be. It's a perfectly healthy way to progress, and we've uh, had indebtedness in this country and built the country through borrowing from foreigners to help us build. But you can overdo anything, and we've over, overdone that. This problem reminds me of another story of a ship that was moving along in the ocean. And all of a sudden, it was a very dark night. All of a sudden, a light loomed up ahead, and the captain was sure they were about to, you know, crash course with another ship. So he said, tell that ship to change course. The, the radio operator said, change course 15 degrees south. I just came back, you change course 15 degrees north. The captain said, tell him who I am. And the radio operator said, this is the captain speaking, change course 15 degrees south. And she came back, I don't care who you are, change course 15 degrees north. The captain says, now tell him who we really are. The message went out, this is a battleship, change course 15 degrees south. The message came back, you change course 15 degrees north, this is a lighthouse. Well, the point of that story is that you have to recognize reality and what it is going to do to you. And if you don't recognize it, you're in real trouble. And our trouble, as I say, is debt. And it's a national shame. It's an ethical shame. The US, the leader of the free world, the richest economy the world has ever seen, the highest standard of living anywhere, ever, by far. And we're the world's number one debtor. We're living beyond our means. And the ethical implications are obvious. We're putting a burden on our children and our grandchildren. Federal debt, to begin with, and that's only one of three areas of debt that's critical. Between 1979 and 1989, in the last 10 years, has gone from $900 billion to $2.8 trillion. $2.8 trillion. 
That means the federal government has borrowed twice as much money in the last 10 years as they did in the 190 years preceding that. And we've done that. Now, you can justify that if it's a time of war, and you have to have borrow the money in order to defend yourself, defend our country for freedom. Or you can justify it if we have a depression, such as we had in the, in the, in the 1930s, when we had to borrow money to enable people to go to work. But these, this is a period of peace and a period of prosperity. Now, why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem for two reasons. In the first place, we are importing more than $100 billion more we are exporting. For years, we paid for that because our investments abroad brought in more dividends and interest than we paid out. But now we have an entirely different situation. As recently as 1981, only eight years ago, our net advantage in ownership of foreign assets compared to foreigners owning our assets reached its peak of $141 billion, no longer. Today, foreigners own $700 billion more than we own of foreign assets. In other words, we not only have an adverse balance of trade where we're paying out more money to buy goods from abroad, we also are paying out more in dividends, more in interest. And in order to pay for it, we're selling off the country to a considerable extent, to foreigners. We are the world's biggest debtor by far. Now, the second part of the problem is the problem that debt is, is for all of us, for everybody, and that is the interest you have to pay on that debt. Interest on the federal debt is the, by far the most rapidly rising expenditure of the federal government. It's now our second biggest federal expenditure, second only to the, what we spend uh, for the defense of this country, the military. And I can tell you, there's no doubt in my mind, that within 10 or 15 years, interest on the debt is going to be the biggest expenditure. Now, the sad part about that interest, it's the one expenditure we can't cut. We can cut anything else, cut any social program. We can cut national defense. We can cut anything, but we cannot cut interest on the debt. One expenditure we have to pay in full, on time, we can't stretch it out, and it is absolutely useless. Doesn't educate a child, doesn't build a house for a homeless person, doesn't provide food, and it limits our compensatory fiscal policy. That's a big phrase, but what it means, of course, is that in a recession or depression, we can compensate by cutting taxes, putting more money in people's pockets. We can compensate by having job programs, putting people to work. Awfully hard to do that when we're already running these colossal deficits we're running and building up the debt we're, we're building up. Then we have the household debt. That's also a moral problem. It's bigger than the national debt. It's already $3.4 trillion, and it's more dangerous. The national government isn't going to go bankrupt. But households are. And in the next recession, they're likely to go bankrupt by the millions. Until about 15 years ago, the typical American family buying a home had to pay about 15% to 20% for interest, for utilities, for property taxes, and so forth. Today, they have to pay 50%, 50%. 
That means if one of the two earners in a typical two earner family lose their job, they're very likely to lose also their home and their car. And of course the ethical implications too on children who inherit this debt are very serious. But the biggest debt of all is the business debt. That's the King Kong of debt in this country. For every dollar of earnings in the 1950s and 60s, the average American business had $2.85 of debt. That's a good, healthy level of debt. They could handle it. Less than $3 for every dollar of earnings. Today, you know what it is? It's not $3, not $4, not $5. It's $9 of debt. Now, what that means is that you have to spend a great deal of your cash flow of your income on just paying interest on your debt. That means you can't put the money you should put into research and development into manpower training to upgrade the skill of your people so they can handle the new technology. You're not able to put it into new equipment because you have to put so much of it into interest. And it means that you are in real trouble. Two Princeton scholars have calculated that a recession even as mild as 74, 75, 10% of American businesses would be bankrupt before, after, before that uh, recession that started out mildly was through. Both Moody's and Standard & Poor, the two most respected investment grading services, have reported a unique phenomenon. We haven't had it before. In a period of recovery, in a period of economic prosperity, downgrades have exceeded upgrades. In other words, the downgrades of corporate securities that go from AAA down to A, because they're graded down, because they're dan the danger of their being bankrupt has increased. And downgrades have exceeded that in a period of recovery. Furthermore, in 1988 and 1989, downgrades have exceeded upgrades by two to one. Two to one. And both Moody's and Standard & Poor's say that heavy debt and leveraged buyouts are responsible. Both agree that a recession could be devastating right now because of the vulnerability of our corporations. Let me tell you what some of the experts say very quickly. The president of Bond Associates, Richard Lehman, said there's going to be a geometric growth in defaults. The editor of Bankruptcy Data in Boston, George Putnam, says roughly three times as many medium-sized and large firms are entering bankruptcies are emerging. The publisher of uh, Turnaround and Workhouse Newsletter, and get this one, said of the 10 largest bankruptcies in history, half have occurred in the last two years. And this, as I say, is in a period of prosperity. What happens in a recession? Well, there are not only ethical implications, it seems to me, in this plight that we're in and pushed ourselves into, but in what we do about it. What's the solution for this? And there again, I want to tell a little story. This is a story about three people who were condemned to death 200 years ago at the time of the French Revolution. One of these three people was a philosopher. One was an historian, one was an engineer. Philosopher said, I've studied philosophy throughout the years, and I've found the noblest characteristic a man can have is will being willing to face his death bravely with his eyes open and not flinch. So I'm going to lie down on the guillotine, the, the guillotine, of course, that cut your head off when you were executed, and watch that guillotine come down and cut my head off. So he lay down, the guillotine came rushing down, stopped just a hair above his Adam's apple. Under the rules of the revolution, he was a free man. Well, the next man was an historian. He said, nobody can tell me that a philosopher is braver than an 
than, than an historian. He said, I've studied history, and I found the same thing is true, that throughout history, the noblest people are the people who can face their death bravely. So I'm going to do the same thing. So he lay down again. The blade came rushing down again and stopped just a hair above his Adam's apple. Well, the third and last man was engineer. And he said, look, he said, philosophers and engineers, they're just the theorizers. He said, I've studied the grim facts of, of physical life and what can happen to you. But he said, I know that the bravest thing to do is to face your death. So I'm going to do the same thing. So he lay down, looked up. Just before the blade started down, he said, wait a minute, fellas. I think I see what's wrong. Of course, the point of that story is that sometimes the solution can be worse than the problem. The answer is an answer that goes to our moral fiber, and that is to practice the old-time religion, Presbyterianism or Puritanism. H.L. Mencken defined a Puritan as the kind of person who had a haunting fear that somewhere someone is happy. Well, that's what we have to do. We have to, cut, we have to cut spending. We have to raise taxes if necessary, make everybody unhappy, but do whatever is necessary in order to get this under control. I tried, you know, a few years ago, I started this, this uh, fleece, this golden fleece uh, uh, institution that uh, uh, the Reverend spoke, spoke of so, so gracefully. Uh, and I gave a fleece to the most outrageous disgusting, terrible waste of money in the preceding month. I found there were all kinds of candidates for that. The first, uh, the first uh, award I gave to an agency that spent $83,000 of your hard-earned money to try to find out why people fall in love. Now, the trouble with that is even if they could give you the answer, I wouldn't want to know. Because the great thing about love is it's mystery. And once the scientists can weigh it and measure it, you can kiss it goodbye. Then I gave it to an agency that spent thousands of dollars to try to find out how they could teach college students how to watch television. <laughs> and then I gave it to an agency that spent, get this one now, $103,000 to try to find out whether sunfish that drink tequila are more aggressive than sunfish that drink gin. Sunfish. You know, they could have come to Minneapolis and gotten all kinds of volunteers for that program. Then I gave it to the West Side, I should say, to the Transportation Department. They had the biggest overrun at that time in the history of the government, over $100 billion. And one of the reasons they had it is because they were building a West Side Highway in New York City. That West Side Highway cost a billion dollars a mile. We calculated that came out at something like $16,000 a square inch. You could have paved it with gold ingots a lot cheaper. Then we gave it to the Department of Agriculture to spend thousands of dollars to try to find out if you took pregnant pigs who were in confinement and required those pregnant pigs to jog an hour and a half on a treadmill every day would it ease their tensions. <laughs> they found out after they spent all the money that the pregnant pigs couldn't talk very well. <laughs> then the National Endowment for Humanities spent thousands of dollars to try to find out why people playing tennis on public courts, tennis, cheat, lie, and are rude. Now, in order to find out, they employed a professor of sociology and a professor of ethics and philosophy and several other professors. 
They surveyed 300 players. They spent thousands of dollars, and I can tell you from experience that people who play tennis on public courts in Washington are still rude, lie, and are dishonest. <laughs> One of the actions I took when I uh, left the Senate was to suggest that one way we could save money, you'll notice that I did it after I left the Senate, was to cut the Senate in half, have only one senator from every state. What do we need two for? I mean, like having two heads, especially if you, you don't have it, but many states do, a Republican and a Democrat. They just cancel each other's vote. So if you have two senators, you'd save half the Senate's salaries, and then you could have the, you'd have the, the House member represent a million people instead of 500,000, and you know, then you could get some real action because the trouble in the congressional elections is that there's a, nothing to win, no suspense. The incumbent always wins. 98% of the incumbents won election to the House last, last time. So you could have a Super Bowl by having them run against each other. Plus the fact you'd save their salaries. And then you could really save money by saying you could only have half the staff they have now. So with half the number of representatives and senators and each having half the staff, that would mean you'd have only about a quarter of the Congress. And Congress, having been put in the mood to save money, then they could move in on the executive. Well, that was one, uh, one approach. <laughs> but seriously, what we could do, you know, we have a, a Graham-Rudman-Hollings bill. I voted for it with a heavy heart, but I did because it did have a cutoff. The cutoff is that if you don't meet the, the reduction that's necessary to get a balanced budget in three or four years, you have an across-the-board cut. You sequester funds. Now this year they've done it in a half way and they're gonna ease up on it, let it go. But they ought to stick with it the whole year. If they did that, they could, they could uh, cut spending greatly. Now let me say that uh, very seriously, there's every prospect that we will be able to cut the budget this time. There was a Vietnam dividend that never developed and it's very hard to do because I can tell you from having served in the Senate for all these years, that there's great resistance in the Congress to cutting because what it means is you have to throw people out of work when you cut them. Six and a half million jobs in this country depend on, the, on uh, defense directly. And probably twice as many depend uh, indirectly. So if, you, uh, if you, we're going to make cuts, we're going to have to pay the price. But we should. It's ridiculous to spend our money in a sterile way. We can agree with the Soviet Union. Gorbachev says he's ready. We can, we can uh, verify whether or not they'd go along with it. They make cuts, we make cuts. They have to cut a great deal more than we do to begin with. The old story was that uh, they're more, they're superior to us in Europe. They aren't, never were, no way. I'll tell you why they, they aren't, because we have, technologically, we're ahead of them. I went through that just a minute ago. And the fact is that we have better tanks, better planes, far better trained pilots. Our pilots had three times the, the flying time our Navy has uh, far more steaming time than they have, far more maneuvers. So our people are, are better trained and have better equipment. And when it comes to, uh, to the economy, NATO has three times the economic strength that the uh, Soviet Union has. That's why they're, uh, they're recognizing they have to back down, plus another very important moral fact. They recognize that if we have a war now between the United States and the Soviet Union, we're all dead. The National Academy of Science has said that if 1%, 1% of the Soviet warhead should strike American cities, we would have between 35 and 55 million dead Americans. That's 1%. Well, I can tell you, 
matter what you think about SDI, Star Wars, defense against, uh, against nuclear missiles, there's no question that 50%, maybe they'd get it down to only 25% would strike American cities, there'd be nothing left. The United States and the Soviet Union would both be dead. Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev agreed that a war would leave nothing but losers, and they were absolutely right. Knowing that, there's no reason why we can't reduce our conventional strength, maintain our deterrent. Soviet maintains their deterrent. And then we live in a world in which we cannot have war, because if we have war, it's going to be uh, the end of everything. Now, I should stop right now. I know that we're at the, uh, just at that point. However, I do want to say one more thing, because it is so terribly important. And that is, we have to recognize that we are failing on another front. And that front is education. We are being challenged more than most of us realize educationally. We're falling behind the Japan, falling behind the free, free Europe, and virtually all the developed world. We've forgotten why, for the last hundred years, the US has had the world's highest standard of living. We've lost that. And we, the, the evidence is very clear. We've lost that educational advantage. The Associated Press recently reported that in a comparison of mathematics proficiency with, with high school graduates in Britain, Canada, Ireland, South Korea, and Spain, America was last, last. Only 40% of American students were adept at solving moderately difficult two-step math problems. 78% of South Koreans could do it. We have an undereducated workforce. The New York Times reported a couple of weeks ago that the top executives of American corporations at Xerox, Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, deplore the low level of, American, of education of the American workforce. The chairman of the board of Bell South Corporation said that in 1987, just two years ago, only 30% of employment candidates met our skill and ability requirements for sales, service, and technical jobs. Now, some people say the problem is we don't spend enough on education. There may be something there, but not very much. We spend 6.5% of our gross national product on education. That's 30% more than Germany or Japan spends of their gross national product, which is smaller per capita basis. Furthermore, for demographic reasons, we have had a decline in our school population in the past 19 years. Since 1970, we're today spending more than 50% more per pupil, allowing fully for inflation than we were spending 19 years ago, and the scores of our students are worse than they were then. Now, what's wrong? The answer is you ask yourself, who was the most important teacher in my life? I'll tell you who it was. It was for me, and I'm sure it was for most of you. Your mother and your father. Now, your mother and father may, may not have had a good education, they may even have been illiterate, but they gave you the values, the discipline. They recognized that the magic key to success in this life, to doing well, to not being employed, bitter, is education. And we just aren't doing that. You know, the fact is that today, Americans spend at least four hours a day every day, seven days a week, watching television. 52 weeks a year. Now, that means that the average child spends 80% more time watching television than he spends in school and doing homework combined. 
We ought to take a key from the Asian immigrants. You know, they come here, they have the clothes on their back, and that's about all. They have no friends, they don't speak the language. In many cases, they're illiterate, but their kids, they've been doing wonderfully. So well that in some universities they're concerned they'll have to have a quota because they're, they're doing so much better than Americans are. Now, why? Because they have the kind of inspiration and, and determination to make their, translate the love of their children into something important. This is the most important ethical uh, responsibility we have, is to have our children understand how important education is. We can do that. There's no limit to what we can do as a country. Thank you very much. Senator Proxmire, a former aide of yours by the name of Tim Like, now lives in this area, and he's written a, a lead article in the current issue of the Skyway News, uh, uh, an item that's uh, published twice weekly here in downtown Minneapolis. He reports that he once put to you the question, why don't you run for president? And your reported response was, why would I do that? I have the best job in the world. And uh, we salute your 32 years in the Senate and uh, loving it and giving it everything as you did. While those who must leave are doing so, let me uh, remind the radio audience that you've been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis, and that you've been listening for the last half hour, along with the thousand uh, people who are in the sanctuary today, to former Wisconsin Senator William Proxmire. He's been talking to us about, and very appropriately, about ethics in government. The co-sponsor today for, for this program is Toby Brill Confections. Let me also say to the radio audience that if you choose, you may phone in your, your question, and we will try to address it during the time that we're on the air. The phone number for the church is 332-3421. Let me also add that questions that don't get posed for lack of time are always presented to the speaker, so your question gets attention one way or another. So, uh, Senator Proxmire, would you be willing to return to the podium, sir? And we will have uh, questions passed to the aisles. I'm fortified with one or two just in uh, uh, anticipation of the time lag. Let me comment. Today is Pearl Harbor Day. Services are being held at 7.55 a.m. in Hawaii aboard the USS Arizona, uh, commemorating the attack uh, which began World War II for us 48 years ago. You said something about our relations with Japan in your address, but would you be willing to say something more uh, about all of that uh, and the relations between our two countries? Well, let me just say about our relations with, with Japan that I'm, I'm very... Uh, uh, optimistic about how we can get along with Japan. As I say, they have a constitution that's modeled after our constitution. And when MacArthur went over right in 1945, they agreed to pretty much model their, not only their constitution and their political setup, but their economic operations on ours. That's one of the reasons why they've been so successful. Uh, there's always a tendency for us to just to, uh, we're all proud of our country, we're all patriotic, uh, but to, to have some resentment about other countries that succeed. I think that's wrong. 
I think the more the jab, the more progress the Japanese do, the more breakthroughs they make, the better off we are. We should recognize that. I don't think the Japanese pose any threat to us. I served in the United States Congress with two Japanese who were representatives from Hawaii, senators from Hawaii, and they were marvelous men. And in World War II, think of what it took for them, the kind of moral courage it took for them to, 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 to serve on our side. They were the descendants of Japanese. They were proud of their of their, uh, uh, the country from which their ancestors came. But they served as marvelous soldiers in the best kind of sense. And I think we should recognize that. And I see no reason to have any fear of the Japanese. Any progress they can make, as I say, is going to be beneficial to us. You spoke uh, in favor of the US ratifying the Genocide Treaty. Would you? Yes, from, 19, Would you from 1966, I, I started that. Uh, uh, series of speeches, and the reason I did it was because President Truman had sent the Genocide Treaty. The Genocide Treaty, incidentally, is a treaty that outlaws the planned, premeditated extinction of an entire religious, ethnic, or religious group. It was aimed, of course, at what Hitler did, most horrible crime in human history, in my judgment, to the Jews in Europe uh, before and during World War II. And uh, we proposed, the United States proposed, we make this an international crime. And we submitted it to the United Nations. The United Nations passed it unanimously. Every major nation by 1966 had ratified that treaty. The United States itself hadn't ratified it. So I decided I'd get up on the floor of the Senate, and I did every day. I was in session. I spoke 3,300 times in favor of ratifying the Genocide Convention. Hmm. And we finally did in, 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 uh, in uh, 1986, and then had the implementing legislation passed in 1988. Incidentally, in 1986, uh, Jim Exon, who is, as you know, the senator from Nebraska, came over and said, Proxmire, he said, I'm going to vote for this treaty because I just want to shut you up. <laughs> 3,000 speeches is enough. <laughs> in a recent syndicated newspaper column, you advocated an end to the federal funding of the arts. This seems to put you in the same camp as Jesse Helms. Please explain your position. Well, I'm glad to have an opportunity. I'm not in the same camp as Jesse. Uh, he's a very courteous, uh, gentle person. I disagree with him on absolutely everything, including this. <laughs> but I feel very strongly that if the federal government funds the arts, that the federal government is going to have a say in the arts. We do in everything else. You can't prevent it. And you should have. You should have some responsibility for where you spend your money. Now, maybe it's because I'm so old or so cantankerous, but I feel very strongly that, that this is a subjective matter. When I see some of these things that are art, I, feel, I agree with my father, who felt the same way. It's just that he had a very artistic kind of nature, and he was an extremely well-educated man. I was very proud of him. But he, he just thought that the modern art made no sense. It was wrong. Now, a lot of people disagree with that. When you have art objects selling for $40 million, what do you need the federal government to come in and, 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 uh, and subsidize it for more? Makes no sense to me at all. If people want to get together in some way and, and favor a certain kind of art that they like, fine. But why should the general taxpayer have to take out of his pocket and fund something that is as subjective as art, modern art is? I'm in a minority in that view, but uh, that's the way I feel about it. <laughs> Thank you.
What is the most effective way to influence one's congressman? One letter, many letters, one phone call, many phone calls, letter to the editor, editor demonstrations. I'm glad you asked that question, and I'll tell you why. The most important thing you can do is be a pest. The people who are pester their congressmen are the ones who are going to really run this country. <laughs> Having served as long as I did in, in the Congress, I can tell you that you don't get pestered enough. I mean that. A congressman enjoy getting mail. We do. We have a staff to help us answer it. And we, we, we do uh, read the mail and understand where the mail is coming from. And uh, we just start with that. And I would think that more and more what you should do, some of the people from Minnesota may not uh, appreciate this who are in the Congress, but I think it's right, call up your congressman. When he's out here, talk to him on the phone. Or if you can afford a long-distance call, call him in, uh, in Washington. And uh, don't settle for just talking to his administrative assistant or somebody else. Talk to him. Tell him where you stand. Get your family involved. Numbers count, believe me. Get your wife, your parents, your kids to uh, all agree, agree that you'll write them, individual letters. You know, in all the time I served in the Senate, I never had a group, only, I only had, I should say, on two occasions, two occasions in 31 years, had a group come to, to me from a business or from a group of people who were working together and saying, we have 10 people here or 50 people here or 100 people here. We'd like to, to tell you where we stand. Do that. Get your people together. It may be a retired group or whatever it is. And ask when you're out in the state, we'd like to talk with you. Do that with your, with your two senators and your congressmen. You can have an influence far beyond your numbers, believe me. Thank you. Even those who engineered Mr. Bush's presidential campaign lament the perceived need to appeal to people's fears and prejudices in order to be elected. Do you perceive that as a rationalization or a sad commentary on the state of the public mind? Well, I like George Bush. I knew him, uh, I knew him before I went to the uh, Congress, and uh, I've known him for a long time, and, and I like him. But I think that was a terrible campaign he conducted, and I think it was disgraceful, and I don't think there was any excuse for it, and I think that we, people I would hope would protest negative campaigns of that kind. Uh, there's enough to campaign on without talking about uh, uh, or demeaning the, uh, the, either the patriotism or the uh, morality of your opponent. You just shouldn't do it, and I thought that was, uh, that was bad. It works, unfortunately, and I suppose that is a moral weakness on the part of our people. Uh, that was one of the reasons he was elected. He was far behind in the polls, and then, as you know, he came on with this campaign, and, and I, Dukakis made some mistakes riding around in that tank looking like Snoopy didn't help him exactly. <laughs> but. Uh, but it was a negative campaign that, uh, that, uh, that really uh, uh, was deplorable. And I would hope that in the future, whether it's a Republican conducting a ne negative campaign or a Democrat, that people would just vote against a person because of the kind of campaign they conducted and keep that in mind when we do vote. It's the only recourse I can think of. It's a free country. People are free to say whatever they want to. But I would hope more and more people would say, well, we've had our stomach full enough of negative campaigning. We're, we're going to protest it by our vote. A number of questions that I have in hand from the uh, audience gather around the savings and loan uh, situation. This one is, when you were chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, uh, were you ever made aware of any savings and loan irregularities? Well, I didn't have any irregularities in the, the so-called Keating sense, for instance, which is a disgrace that came on recently. We did have a uh, <coughs> responsibility, and uh, we flunked it. 
We flunked it. We didn't have the information we should have had, the data. You know, you can't act unless you have the, an understanding of what's going on. With the savings and loans, they are very heavily regulated. The regulators didn't know what was going on. We had, uh, we had Gray, we had Danny Wall, we had the other people who were regulating the savings and loan industry come up and testify. We would quiz them at great length, and they insisted that there were no problems. Now, some of the outsiders, the GAO and so forth, came up and said that there were, that the federal government was going to be hit and hit hard, and we had to change the situation. We weren't on top of the situation the way we should have been. We have, after all, a situation where we have uh, had uh, on the banking committee uh, uh, one staffer who spent part of his time uh, keeping us informed on the, uh, uh, on the savings and loans. We had a lot of other responsibilities. Uh, that, that staffer was overwhelmed. Regulators, of course, have hundreds of people who have that job, and they simply didn't, uh, didn't uh, get the information. You know that there were many, many savings and loans, particularly in Texas and California, because they had a breakdown in the, in the examination process, many savings and loans who weren't examined for years. So how could we know what was going on? They just had to take the, the, what, was, what their status was on the basis of their word, and it turned out their word wasn't very good. So what we need to do is have a far stricter regulation system. That'll cost some money, but it'll save at least $100 for every dollar it costs. If you don't know what's going on, if you don't have an audited system, if you don't have the facts in front of you, you can't run a business and you can't regulate a business. We simply didn't have that. Another question from the audience. Political analysts have often referred to you as playing the outsider or maverick rule in the Senate. Is that an important rule and who plays it now? Well, some people say that. You know, one of, the, one of the things I did when I came to the United States Senate in 1957, I'd been elected uh, in, a, in an upset. People didn't think I could win. I beat a man who'd beaten me twice for governor, and uh, I beat him. So when I came down, it was, they were, they were, the Democrats were happy because if I'd lost, the Republicans would have, uh, as things turned out, would have controlled the Senate the next year because we had a person who died and and the Republican governor appointed a Republican senator to take a Democrat's place. So my election was very important. And Lyndon Johnson and Mike Mansfield and so forth came out to meet me. And they were, they were very good to me. But I just felt the way the Senate was run at that time, if you, were, if you, were a, if you played along with a gang, played along with the rest of the senators, you, you, uh, you did whatever Lyndon wanted. And Lyndon Johnson controlled that Senate, really, just the way a, a, a Dictatorial boss controls a company that he owns, lock, stock, and barrel, and can hire and fire people anytime he wants. He determined everything, everything. Nothing could happen in the Senate without his approval. And we'd have no caucuses, you know. In most bodies, what you do is you have a caucus of the Democratic Party and a caucus of the Republican Party, and the Democrats would determine what their policies would be, and the Republicans would determine what their policies would be, and the leaders would take their cue from the rank and file. Lyndon would have one caucus every two years. And once in a while, he'd call on Hubert Humphrey to give a speech or Dick Russell to give a speech, and that would be the end of the caucus. Well, I thought this was terrible. So I decided, after I'd been there a little over a year, I decided I'd do something about it. So I got up on the floor of the Senate, and it was on Washington's birthday. It was a good time to speak, because uh, all we did usually then was have Washington's farewell address, and then we'd adjourn. 
Well, the Washington's farewell address was read by uh, one member of the Senate, and then I gave an attack on Lyndon. And I said, there's no way to run this body. We ought to have caucuses every week, the way the Republicans did at that time. We, do, we had uh, no caucuses in the Democratic Party, and this is wrong. Lyndon wasn't elected by anybody in Wisconsin. And when I finished, a, a reporter in the, in the press gallery said there were two farewell addresses a day, Proxmire's and Washington's. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I got off on that foot, and I'll tell you, one of the reasons why I think being a United States Senator is the best job in the world is you can do that if you want to. Mm -hmm. And I think you can be fairly effective in the process. My opponents in Wisconsin didn't agree with that, but I think that's a, that's a pretty good way to operate. Mm -hmm. Nobody can kick you out of the Senate, after all, except the people who elect you. Another question from the floor, and indeed from, it's signed from a Yale classmate. Would you agree that the arms industry exists not to support the military, but rather the military exists to support the arms industry? If so, what can Congress do to rectify this situation? Well, that's, a, that's an excellent point. I think that's, that's true to a considerable extent. In fairness, however, there's no question that, uh, that the arms industry is, uh, has given us a, a marvelous uh, equipment. Uh, they've given us the best planes in the world. You know, the reason why uh, the Israel had an air battle with the Syrians. The Syrians were flying Russian MiGs. The Israelis were flying American planes. And in that battle, it was typical. In that battle, 72 Russian MiGs were shot down, and the Israelis didn't lose a single plane. Now, that kind of advantage, you have to give some credit to American industry for that kind of thing. They, they, they've done a fine job. But there is a tendency, I think, on the part of people who are elected to Congress to feel as if they represent the people who own that business and who contribute to their campaigns and the workers who work there, who are their constituents, and will do whatever is necessary in order to keep their jobs. That's wrong. What it means is that instead of providing the funds we need for so many wonderfully desirable social purposes that are critical to our country, instead of that we provided for a, a, a dead operation, dead, D-E-A-D, and we go in debt in the process, of course, but I think that, that that's the mistake that, uh, that is made. It's not a mistake on the part of the people in the industry by and large. They may, they may uh, uh, in some cases, uh, have gone too far, but by and large, they're serving our country and they're patriotic and they deserve credit for having developed uh, fine planes and tanks and missiles and so forth. That was their job, they did it well. Another question, how has the quality of your peers in government changed in your 30 years? What does it take to attract the best to government service? Well, all the talk about how you need to increase uh, salaries in order to get better people in the Senate is baloney, in my view. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> the the uh, pay of people in the House and Senate is going to be increased in the next uh, few weeks. Uh, but the present pay was $89,500. $89,500 is more than the 98% of the families in this country live on. And if you're not smart enough to get along on that, you're not smart enough to be in the Congress of the United States. <laughs> so I, I feel very, very strongly that, uh, that when you're elected, and it's true of, you know, people when they're elected, my gosh, they spend three, four, five million dollars to get elected. They don't really run for that office for the salary. They run because it gives you an influence, at best at least. They run be because it gives you an opportunity to make a better world, a better country. 
and uh, the, the psychic uh, uh, rewards are much greater than any, any kind of pay you have. Of course, in addition to that, in most cases, people's wives work. They, they come to the uh, Senate with money that they've made before that, and that they've invested, they have income from that. Uh, I haven't seen anybody in the, in the Senate who was really needy <laughs> for the House. <laughs> We're moving toward the end of our time together. It's terribly frustrating because I have a fistful of excellent questions, both from this audience and from the radio audience. But let me put one more to you. It, it's in keeping with uh, uh, something you said about education and who are our real educators. What were the factors in your early life that influenced you to pursue a career of public service? <laughs> I've never been asked that question before. It's a fascinating question. I'll tell you. It wasn't my dad or my mother, because my father was a doctor. He was a very, very strong Republican who didn't have much uh, time for, uh, for government, uh, but a wonderful man, a deeply moral man in the best possible sense. He loved people, and he spent his life trying to help people in all kinds of ways, but he didn't have this, the broad social sense at all. I suppose what, what happened to me, I started off uh, after I graduated from, uh, from Harvard Business School. I, I went to uh, Yale and then Harvard Business School. I went in the Army in World War II, and I came out after the Army, and I went to, decided that I didn't want to be, a, I was, in, incidentally, when I graduated from business school, I went to work for J.P. Morgan and Company, no less, in Wall Street. And I worked for them for uh, six months, and I decided I didn't want to be a banker. And after the war was over, I decided what I wanted to do was either get into journalism or into politics. So I went back to Harvard for another degree in public administration. And when I was there, my father said, <laughs> my son went to Harvard and turned left. <laughs> well, I didn't turn very far left. At least most of the Democrats in the state think I'm still a righty. But at any rate, uh, that, was the, that was what happened. And uh, there's so many satisfactions in public life uh, that uh, whether it's at the city level, the Board of Education, whatever it is, that I felt that's what I wanted to do. Folks, thank you very, very much. <laughs> thank <you. laughs>